We'd like to welcome you back to part three of our study on the pre-tribulation rapture versus the post-tribulation rapture. Now we're actually going to get into the Bible study regarding the various verses in the Bible that pertain to the rapture. Uh, this is, I'm using a post-tribulation rapture document uh, by Pastor Sam Adams of Independence Baptist Church, Bellevue, Florida. And um, uh, Pastor Adams has been a good friend of mine, and um, this was a very good template, I believe, for launching the study. <clears throat> what I did as I went through here, a lot of the verses that he had listed, um, I actually put the verses in to the study so you could read them for yourself. I'm going to be reading them, but as a template, you can go back, and, or if you want to follow along with the study, we're beginning on, it's going to be on about page 8 here, around there, of the uh, PDF for December 21st, 2011. And I give all of, his, all of his contact information as well, his website and uh, phone number and these types of things. So, going further, let's go ahead and start on this. The doctrine of the rapture of the church is clearly taught in Scripture, as its meaning is inferred from the Greek word harpazo, translated caught up in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. However, among premillennialists, those who rightly believe that the second coming of Christ precedes his literal thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, uh, see Revelation 19 and 20, there are several opposing views uh, concerning the timing of the rapture in relation to the Great Tribulation of Matthew 24, verses 21 through 29, Daniel 12, 1, Revelation uh, 6 through 19, etc. The following arguments show that contrary to the popular pre-trib rapture position, uh, only the the post-tribulation rapture, where the church will be on earth through the entire tribulation period, is the only position clearly taught in Scripture, and which easily harmonizes with all the passages dealing with the second coming of Christ. So this is what we're going to be looking at. Now, let's go ahead and just get right into the Bible study. First Scriptures we're going to be looking at, uh, 1 Corinthians... 15, 51 through 55. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. Now that word in this in the King James Bible means basically to die. Sleep uh, is not talking about restful sleep. It's talking about uh, actual physical death. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. <clears throat> in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead and, rise, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on... Now, this means our... The body, essentially. Our corrupt bodies... Okay, this is when we will be changed. This is when we will actually be transformed and be given an incorruptible body at Christ's return, at the last trump. The dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Okay, That's what we're in reference to here. This is the rapture. 
when this corruptible shall put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. That's when death is actually swallowed up in victory. At that moment. And then the next verse, verse 55, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? This is at the last trump. This is at, (laughs) this is, obviously at the end of the tribulation. Just this verse alone, uh, you know, if, if you just look at that and you just read it for face value, how could that take place at the start of the tribulation? When death is swallowed up in victory? How, that doesn't make any sense. Death is swallowed up in victory after the tribulation. Okay? Or at the end of the tribulation, when Christ returns. I mean, if, you know, since the resurrection since the resurrection slash rapture occurs at the last trump, it cannot take place before the sound of the great trumpet mentioned by the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 24, 31. I mean, this is the last trump. Okay? Since the resurrection or rapture of the church occurs at the last trump, in the verses we just read, it cannot take place before the sound of a great the great sound of a trumpet, quote the great sound of a trumpet, mentioned in Matthew 24, 31, which clearly occurs at um, after the end of the tribulation. And we're going to read that verse. In fact, it appears evident if we compare the trumpet of 1 Corinthians uh, 15, 51-52, which is what we just read, to that of Matthew 24, 31, they are the same event. <clears throat> Matthew 24, 29-31. Now we're going to clarify. Jesus Christ talking regarding the end time tribulation period, and specifically, Jesus Christ saying immediately, uh, in verse 29, he says, quote, immediately after the tribulation of those days. So he's saying, Jesus Christ is saying, immediately after the tribulation of those days. This is the tribulation of the Bible, seven-year tribulation, Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the stars shall fall from heaven and the powers of heaven shall be shaken. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then shall all tribes of the earth mourn and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with power and great glory. This is when all eyes will see him and behold him. It's at the end of the tribulation. And he shall send his angels, Jesus Christ, and he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. And they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Doesn't that sound like the rapture? (laughs) That's when it happens. It's at the end of the tribulation. I mean, all you have to do is compare that to the verses we just read. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for we, for the trumpet shall, shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Compare that to, and he shall send his angels, in, in Matthew 24, 31, Jesus Christ, and this is after the tribulation, it says it in verse 29, immediately after the tribulation, skipping forward to verse 31, Matthew 24, and he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. It's the same trumpet we're in reference to here. And they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. That's the rapture. 
Notice this event occurs after the tribulation. See, see verse 29, Matthew 24. So it cannot come before the seven trumpet judgments of Revelation 8 through 11. Because they occur during the tribulation. With the seventh or the last trump, with the seven or the last trump occurring. Logically, this great sound of a trumpet of Matthew 24, 31 is synonymous with and actually is the seventh trumpet itself. They're synonymous. Revelation eleven fifteen. We're just getting started now. Revelation eleven fifteen. And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Now this is the seventh angel sounding. The seventh trumpet. Okay? This is where it's in reference to in, in Revelation. Revelation eleven fifteen. Now this would be synonymous with the sound of the great trumpet of Matthew twenty four thirty one, and also the uh, at the last trump that we just mentioned in Corinthians, the rapture of the church. This is it's synonymous with that. Revelation eleven fifteen. And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, "The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever." Wouldn't that kind of make sense if that was the, literally the end of the tribulation, the start of the thousand year millennial reign, and or you know obviously in that general time frame. Isn't that when Jesus Christ is going to reign forever and ever? Same thing, same event. This is technically the last trump of Revelation 11.15. And therefore, would be the same trumpet previously mentioned in Matthew 24.31, 1 Corinthians 15.52, and also 1 Thessalonians 4.16, which we will read now. Except I'm going to read more than 1 Thessalonians 4.16. So these are all synonymous. Now, here's the next set of verses. <clears throat> 1 Thessalonians 4.13-4.18. through 4, I'm going to expand on this a little bit more. I'm not just going to read 4.16. I'm going to read 4.13 all the way to 4.18 to give you a more complete picture of this portion of Scripture. 1 Thessalonians 4.13-18 says, But I would not have you be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, meaning dead in Christ, in this particular context, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus, those believers that are that died as Christians, in other words, will bring will God bring with him. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which are asleep in Jesus will God bring with him. Jesus is going to bring back the believers that died in Christ, their spirits essentially back with him when he returns to unite them then raising their corruptible body that's dead in the earth at this point, giving them a new body and and joining it with their spirit. That's when it happens. Okay? It's going to happen to those that are dead or asleep in Christ first. And then to the, the believers that are still living on planet Earth, second. And the scriptures clearly teach that, and we'll get into that. <clears throat> For if we believe that Jesus died and rose, from, rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that which we are alive and remain under the coming of the, of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. So there's going to be people alive, 
that are born-again Bible-believing Christians, and there's going to be people that obviously have passed away, that are in the ground, in the grave, let's just say. For, and then the next verse, uh, verse 16, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trump of God. Well, doesn't that sound like what we just read? Doesn't that sound like all the verses that we already just referenced? The voice of an archangel, the Lord shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel. Well, hold on, what did, what did uh, Revelation eleven fifteen just say? And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven. Hmm. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, and with the voice of an archangel, and with the trump of God. Again, this is the seventh trumpet. This is the same trumpet we just referenced in Matthew 24, 31, 1 Corinthians 15, 52. Same one. And also Revelation eleven fifteen, the Lord, the Lord Jesus, Jesus Himself, I put in Jesus, but Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then which we are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. But if we look at all these verses together, obviously in reference to the same event, this occurs at the end of the tribulation. Not at the beginning. Not prior to the tribulation. There's no way you can... That's what I mean. If, you, if all you ever had was a Bible and you had to arrive at the, at the, uh, the um, conclusion of the pre-tribulation rapture, you'd have to do a lot of scripture twisting and ignore huge swaths of what the scriptures clearly teach. Let's go further. Notice how similar these verses are to the previously read 1 Corinthians 15, 51-55, which clearly state in 1 Corinthians 15.52, that these events, in this case clearly the rapture of the church, takes place at the last trump, which has clearly been shown to be immediately after the end of the seven-year tribulation. The Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 24.29-31 clearly taught a post-tribulation rapture himself. Let's read that. Uh, actually, I tell you what, let's, let's actually read Mark first. Mark... 13, 24 through 27. Jesus Christ speaking. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun shall be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars of heaven shall fall, and the powers that are in heaven shall be shaken. And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And he shall send his angels, and shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from the uttermost parts of the earth to the uttermost parts of heaven. That's the rapture. And this is the second time Jesus Christ has taught this. Now we're looking at the version in Mark, before we just looked at the version in Matthew, which we'll actually look at again briefly. Jesus said, the trumpet will sound, and the elect will be gathered immediately after the tribulation. And he, and he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, 
and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Pre-trib proponents must dismiss this passage by saying it does not refer to the rapture, which it clearly does. The following argument shows that the event described in Matthew 24, 31 is the rapture of the church. A, number A, the event of this passage being the rapture easily harmonizes with other rapture passages like uh, Jesus coming in the clouds of heaven. Uh, Where does it say that? Well, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of our angel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Uh, Also, here's one. Jesus coming in the clouds of heaven. These are are some uh, verses that these passages harmonize. Daniel 7, 13-14 I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, languages should serve him. This sounds like when Jesus takes over at the thousand year millennial reign of Christ. It is. It's the same event. And notice, since it's the same event, and this is in Daniel, this is in the Old Testament, I saw in the night visions and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven. Huh. Just like in 1 Thessalonians 4.16 where it says, And the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout. Hmm, yeah. And we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Yeah, it sounds a lot like this verse in Daniel. The Son of Man, meaning Jesus Christ, it's capital S. When you see capital S, Son of Man, that's in reference to Jesus Christ, just so you know, in Daniel. And and came to the Ancient of Days, going back to Daniel, and they brought him near before him. They brought the Son of Man near before who? The Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days is Father God. Okay, they're distinct and different. The Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days. The Son came to his Father. The Ancient of Days is the Father. Okay? And there was given him who? The Son of Man, dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, languages should serve him, Jesus Christ. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. Huh. Where where does it kind of make reference to that in the Bible? This kingdom that's going to be given to Jesus Christ. Wow, that sounds a lot like the seventh angel sounding the seventh trumpet that we previously just read in, in Revelation 15. Let me read that verse and refresh your memory. Revelation 11, 15. And the seventh angel sounded and there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. It's the same event. They all harmonize perfectly. As I was going through this, the Lord was showing me these different and various things or verses were popping into my head and I was actually adding them in, bolstering what was already there. And all these verses are listed for you. You can go look at them. Now, what's another thing? Um, Let's go back to Matthew 24, 31. Now, there's a lot of redundancy in this teaching. Because I want to make this as crystal clear as possible for my listeners so that they can defend this position easily. 
And so that there's no doubt about what we're talking about. We're going to be picking apart verses, different aspects of different verses, and then watching for confirmation in other verses of the Bible. So there's a lot of redundancy, so forgive me for that. I just want to do this the right way. Really go over this with a fine-tooth comb. Uh, point B, Matthew twenty four thirty one, And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. And they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the earth to the other. Now this is after the tribulation, as it said in verse 29, two passages before. The event in this passage, being the rapture, also easily easily harmonizes with other rapture passages like... Now in in this particular portion, we're keen on the sound of a great trumpet, or or the trump. Okay, That verse in Matthew, which occurs after the tribulation easily harmonizes with other rapture passages like 1 Thessalonians 4.16 For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an, arch- with the voice of an archangel, with the trump of God. Again, here we... And the dead in Christ shall rise first. This is the rapture. Okay, What's another verse? 1 Corinthians 15.52 In the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. The rapture again. Another verse. With a trumpet. Revelation 11.15 And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of the world are become the kingdoms of our Lord of Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The seventh angel sounded. He sounded the last trump. That's the last trump. In the Bible. The seventh trump. Okay, what's another point? Uh... And he, uh, again, Matthew twenty four thirty one. He shall send his angels. This is now what we're going to. Uh, this is what we're going to emphasize in this point. He shall send his angels with the sound of a great trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of, end of heaven to the other. The event in this passage, being the rapture, also easily harmonizes with the other rapture passages, like accompanied by angels. Uh, you can look at 1 Thessalonians 4.16, the voice of an archangel. You can look at 2 Thessalonians 1.7, which says, And to you who are troubled, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord, and from the glory of his power, when, when is that? Really at the Battle of Armageddon. Which occurs really essentially same exact time frame and a tribulation. Okay? When he shall come to be glorified in his saints. Wouldn't that make sense that aren't the saints going to receive glorified bodies at that exact, basically at that exact moment? Yes, they're, they're going to be raised. This corruption must put on incorruption. He's going to be glorified in his saints at that point. There's another confirmation. And to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. Okay, here's a little sidebar that I I just got convicted about. 2 Thessalonians 2.1 says, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto him. Okay, now this is in reference to the rapture as well. 2 Thessalonians 2, which is a... a Portions of scripture you hear me quote a lot. Okay. Now we beseech you brethren by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him. 
post-tribulation rapture, that ye be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter as from us, as the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first. <laughs> We're sure seeing that now. That derives from the word apostia, uh, apos, I'm, I'm sorry, apostosa. Okay, the Greek, falling away. Okay, verse 3, apostosa, meaning rebellion, falling away, uh, the apostasy of the church. Okay. Let no man deceive you by any means. That day, meaning the rapture of the church, shall not come except there come a falling away first and the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. We're definitely seeing the falling away of the church. We've been seeing that really, I think, since the early 1800s. Really when a lot of the stuff that I mentioned in the previous two teachings got really rolling. A lot of the heresies started coming in. Okay, Antichrist hasn't been revealed though. It's the second thing. It's really the next thing on God's timetable. Or, or one of the next things, at least. Okay, so, the plain sense interpretation and obvious point of this, these passages was meant to dispel a false alarm at Thessalonica. Why? Because it's in the book of Thessalonians. It deals with the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together unto him and will not occur until after the falling away, the apostasy, and after the Antichrist is revealed uh, as well. The falling away in verse 3 apostosa, meaning rebellion, uh, see 1 Timothy 4, 1-2, Matthew 24, 10, cannot mean the rapture of the church, meaning the falling away isn't the rapture of the church, uh, as claimed by many pre-trib proponents, because it is totally contrary to the clear meaning of the Greek word apostosa, which means rebellion and anarchy and not a catching away of the saints. You see how what type of... I remember when I was early in the church and they were saying, oh, that actually means the actual rapture of the church. No, it doesn't. The underlying root word, the Greek word apostosa, means rebellion and anarchy. It's a falling away of the church. It's not, a, it's not the, uh, the rapture of the church. You just got you to gotta twist a lot of scripture to believe and teach the pre-trib rapture. In the pre-trib argument from this passage that the church must be the restraining influence of verses 6 and 7 and thus be removed from the earth is also false. According to the pre-trib position, he who now letteth, in verse 7, where it says he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way, meaning like this restraining force that's preventing the arrival of the Antichrist. Okay. According to pre-trib position, he who now letteth in verse 7 is the Holy Spirit as he is working through the church, and therefore the church must be removed from the earth before the Antichrist can be revealed. Okay, again, huge stretch of, of, um, of the imagination to dogmatically say that's the case. However, the Holy Spirit's ministry of indwelling believers is not equivalent with his ministry of restraining the Antichrist. Okay, I mean, they're, they're two separate things, okay? If in fact he, if in fact the he of this passage is the Holy Spirit, which really isn't even clearly shown, it doesn't say, and the Holy Spirit who now, you know, letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. It doesn't say that. We're 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 guessing. That's what I mean. With the pre-trip theory, there's a lot of stuff that you have to. It's like trying to jam a square peg into a round hole, 
in order to justify the pre-trib position. It doesn't harmonize. It does not harmonize with the other passages, as, as we've already just shown. And, we, and again, we're, we're just kind of getting cranked up. The Holy Spirit is eternal, omnipresent, omnipotent, and omniscient. And is not limited to only indwelling believers. And can cease restraining the Antichrist without the church being raptured at any time. I mean, if the Holy Spirit is what woos us as a Christian, the Holy Spirit's here. It's not just, yes, he indwells in born-again Bible-believing Christians, but he's also here in general. And he's not going to be just totally taken off the earth during the um, revelatory period. Or, you know, he is what is actually most likely restraining, you know, the Antichrist. But it doesn't necessarily depend upon the Holy Spirit indwelling a believer. Again, it's just wild speculation to say that. But these are just some of the pre-trib arguments that, I mean, I believed for a long time, but I never really looked into it. I mean, it, even back then I can remember, well, that kind of sounds like a stretch, kind of weak, kind of sounds like speculation, but hey, I, you know, I'm like, well, okay, I, I'll, buy, I'll buy into it. Uh, continuing now, uh, let's go Second Thessalonians 2 Thessalonians 2.4, okay, with this portion of Scripture. Who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, this is the Antichrist, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now, that particular portion of scripture, I believe, is in reference to the abomination of desolation, when the Antichrist is going to go into the temple of God and proclaim himself to be God, committing the abomination of desolation, which is going to mark the midpoint of the tribulation period, where he's going to supposedly show himself that he is God. Next verse, remember ye not that when I was with you, I told you these things. And now ye know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. And I mean, you know, again, that's saying, that this, this stretch is that, okay, the he be taken out of the way is the rapture of the church, essentially. The Holy Spirit that lives inside the born-again believers on the church at that time. He's going to be taken. I mean, it's like, wow, what a leap of logic that is to stretch that one out. And also in clear contradiction with all these other verses that we just talked about. But, like I said, that's the way it is with the pre-trip theory. It's, it's a theory. And it's a pretty wild one. When you really start looking at all of the, the, well, the history alone and then the, the other Bible verses that clearly contradict it. And then the next verse, Second uh, Thessalonians two eight, and then shall that wicked be revealed, wicked capital W, the Antichrist, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him, whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. And with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. Okay, now, after, I'm going to, I'm going to backtrack a little bit here, Second Thessalonians 2, eight, the verse we just read. And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Okay, let's go to Revelation 19, 20 and 21. And the beast was taken... And with him, the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, and which deceived, and which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and 
them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire, burning with brimstone. This is at the end of the tribulation, after the, basically, battle of Armageddon. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls that were filled with their flesh. So, when, and this is just a sidebar, kind of, but the wicked shall be revealed in, in 2 Thessalonians 2 8, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy the brightness of his coming. When does that happen? Revelation 21, or 19.21, And the remnant were slain, and the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, this is the battle of Armageddon, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. So anyway, it's just kind of a parallel verse there that also actually occurs at the end of the tribulation. This is when Jesus Christ comes back on a white horse at the battle of Armageddon. Okay, next point. Point D, Matthew 24, 31. Uh, gathering, this the point we're going to emphasize now is gathering the elect from heaven and earth. Some verses that harmonize with a post-trib position. Again, going back to Matthew 24, 31, and he shall send his angels with the sound of a great trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. And again, this verse clearly occurs immediately after the tribulation. Jesus Christ spoke in that verse. Now, where are some other verses in the Bible that confirm this regarding just the... All we're going to key in on now is the gathering of the elect from heaven and earth. Okay, Mark thirteen twenty seven, And they and then shall he send his angels and shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from the uttermost part of the earth to the uttermost part of heaven. Okay, First uh, Thessalonians four sixteen, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord. That kind of sounds like the gathering of the elect from heaven and earth, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, that confirms Matthew 24, 31. Where's another verse? Okay. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1, we just read. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him. All of this occurs at the end of the tribulation. It's the only thing that easily harmonizes in Scripture. Okay, there's more confirmation. So, let's go further. Jesus is privately addressing his closest apostles. Um, I believe in one reference. Uh, in, in the end time disclosures of his closest apostles, Peter, James, John, and Andrew. Okay, and if you want to know exactly why I'm saying Peter, James, John, and Andrew, see Mark 13.3. Okay. He's privately addressing his closest apostles in the end-time disclosures of Matthew 24 and Mark 13, to whom he had already announced the conception of the church in Matthew 16, 18, and 18, 17. If the church was to escape the tribulation, Jesus would certainly have told these men who would be leading the early church instead of, instead he taught them to prepare for tribulation, to expect persecution, and or martyrdom, and to wait for their promised deliverance after the tribulation of those days. He would not have told these men to expect the tribulation if he was going to later reveal to the Apostle Paul that the church would be exempted. Again, just common sense stuff here that we look at, that you know they conveniently ignore in the modern day 501c3 corporate church. The argument that Jesus is addressing national Israel in this discourse, in Matthew 24 and Mark 13, I believe, 
rather than the church or his elect in this passage is the elect remnant of Israel on earth during the tribulation is false. In other words, there's some pre-trib proponents that, that say, oh no, this is only in reference to Israel. It's not even in reference to the church because the church isn't on the planet. Okay, that's false as well. Okay, and, and we're going to explain why. The gathering of the elect in Matthew 24, 31 cannot refer to the regathering of national Israel, which is referenced in Isaiah eleven eleven, as the Antichrist must confirm a seven-year covenant with Israel, according to Daniel 9, 24-27, and therefore Israel must be regathered and already in place before the tribulation which is the time of Jacob's trouble, according to Jeremiah 30, can even begin. Also, Matthew 24, 9 shows that Jesus is addressing Christians and not Israel. Why? Okay, let's read it. Matthew 24, 9. And they shall deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you, and ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. Um, okay, well, what does that mean? Okay, well, he said, for my name's sake. Jesus is addressing Christians, not Israel. In other words, they're not being per- persecuted for being Israel or Jews so much as they are for God's namesake. Well, what were they first called in Antioch? Christians. Why? Because they were followers of Christ. So they're being persecuted and hated for the namesake of Jesus, Christians. Where do we get confirmation of this? John fifteen twenty. Through 21 says, remember the word, and this is Jesus Christ talking, remember the word I have said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have, if they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake. Because they know not that him that sent me. For Jesus' name's sake. He was Christ. We're Christians. Okay? It's not in reference to Israel, in other words. Uh, also, Acts eleven twenty six, and the disciples were first called Christians, were called Christians first in Antioch. Third point, the disciples being addressed in Matthew 24 represent his believers on earth both before and during the tribulation. So if the elect in Matthew 24, 31 were saved before the tribulation, they should have been raptured with the church. If they were not saved before the presumed pre-trib rapture, how did they get saved afterward? As no one would be left on earth to lead them to the Lord. So it would essentially be like Christianity starting over again from scratch with the number of Christians on planet earth being zero the moment after the pre-tribulation rapture. Think about that one. Really, I mean, dwell on that one a little bit, what I just said. No one would be left on earth to lead them to the Lord. I mean, if there was a preacher of rapture, all the Christians are gone. How's anybody going to get saved? Well, they'll just have to pick up their Bibles and figure it out. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It would be like Christianity starting over again from, from ground zero, with the number of Christians on planet earth being zero the moment after the preacher of rapture. So how did the great multitude of Revelation 7 and 9 get saved during the tribulation? (laughs) 
Revelation 7, 9, And after this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations, and kindreds, and people, and tongues, stood before the throne, before the Lamb of God, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes? And whence came they? And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said unto me, These are they which came out of great tribulation. The latter half of the three and a half period, three and a half year tribulation period. These are specifically those that came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. If this great multitude are all saved through the ministry of the 144,000 Jewish evangelists of Revelation 7-4, how did the 144,000 get saved? When everybody had been raptured prior to the tribulation. Think about that. How did they all get saved? I mean, the Bible talks about, you know, how can they get saved unless they hear? You know? Unless a preacher goeth to them type of thing. There's that verse. In, um, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense when you start thinking about it. If the 144,000 were saved before the tribulation, why weren't they raptured with the church if you're a pre-trib believer? You could say, well, yeah, they were saved before the... Well, then why weren't they raptured pre-trib? Well, they got saved after. Who led them to the Lord? <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. Now, again, you can... If you're, if you're not, like, totally comprehending everything I'm saying, stop the tape now. Go to the PDF. Hopefully you're following along if you can. Go back through the portions of scriptures I just read carefully. If you need to go do, do it two or three times, I had to go over some of these two or three times to get it to fully lock into my head. Because it is, this is a complex study. It is a complex study. And particularly if you have preconceived notions. A lot of those preconceived notions are going to start like, whoa, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, that's so obvious, but it can take some time. So that, that's another point to think about. Uh, let's go to the fourth point. The pre-trib doctrine that the church will be removed from the earth for the 144,000 to succeed where the church could not in converting Israel is totally contrary. Now these are, these are pre-trib arguments that you'll hear. So I'm trying to address these through this, through this PDF from, from Pastor Sam Adams. I'm trying to address these because obviously these are the questions that are going to come up. So I don't want to argue with anybody about Pre-trib versus post-trib. This is my argument. This multi-part teaching is my argument. Remember, I was a pre-trib for a long time. Pre-trib adherent for a long time. I had never really looked at it though. I just accepted what was, I blindly accepted what was given to me. Even though I read a lot of the scriptures and it didn't quite seem right. Uh, a lot of things didn't seem right. Now they really don't seem right. Look into this. What's obviously there. So this is my, this is my argument. For anybody that wants to argue with me. I'll just let the scriptures do the talking. And also the blatant history of the pre-trib rapture. <laughs> That's, that, that can't be ignored either. And I got into that in the first two parts of this teaching. So, uh, let's go back to this. I'm going to read that point again. Point four, the pre-trib doctrine that the church will be removed from the earth. For the 144,000 Jewish male virgin evangelists... And if you don't believe all of that, what I just said, just reference Matthew 7 and uh, Revelation 7 and Revelation 14. Okay, anyway. 
the preacher of doctrine that the church will be removed from the earth for the 144,000 to succeed where the church cannot in converting Israel is totally contrary to the stated mission of the church, which was to preach the gospel to the Jew first and then the Gentile. Uh, see Romans 1.16, Jesus said the gates of hell could not prevail against his church. How much less can Israelites who resist the gospel? Point five. Throughout the New Testament, the word elect, as is used in Matthew 24.31, which is eklektos, meaning chosen, refers not to Israel, but to the church. So you look at where that word's used, and it's not used you know, to Israel, but to his church. Including, which the church includes both Jews and Gentiles called to salvation. So in other words, people say, oh, the elect is only a reference to Israel. No, when you look at the usage of that word, electos, which means chosen, it refers not to Israel, but to the church, including both Jews and Gentiles. See Luke 18.7, Romans 8.33, Romans 9.11-16, in Romans 11.7, the elect have obtained what Israel could not. Blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. Romans 11.7, again we'll read that, what then Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Why were the rest blinded? Well, I believe, and I've done a whole teaching on this, the, the reason for Israel's, the biblical reason for the Jews' uh, afflictions from the last, basically, almost 2,000 years, when Jesus Christ was on the cross, and they said, and Pilate was like, okay, if I know fault in this man, essentially, why don't I give you Jesus? Now I'm paraphrasing. And they said, no, 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 take away Jesus, give us Barabbas, the murderer, let Jesus' blood be upon us and our children. They corporately brought a, essentially like a curse on themselves. And how can you, how can you really deny that? They've been scattered, driven from pillar to post over these hundreds and thousands of years since then. You look at the Holocaust that happened in Germany, six million Jews dying there. The persecution, they've, they haven't exactly been blessed. You know, they've had a lot of really hard, horrific times. Okay, so, this, they were blinded. They literally asked to be blinded. Does that mean that I'm anti-Semitic in that, um, no, I'm not saying that at all. I'm, I'm not that at all. I've done many teachings defending the nation of Israel and these types of things. But I'm not going to go so far as like John Hagee goes and says that, well, they're just... Uh, they get a free pass from God because they're Jewish. Just be ethnic salvation. Or just to condone every action of them. I've done a whole bunch of teachings relating to that particular subject. So I'm, I'm just trying to have balance there. So, Romans 11.7. What then Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for? Remember, he came to his own, Jesus Christ, and his own received him not. They rejected him. I believe it was when Paul said, from henceforth I will go to the Gentiles. And they kept rejecting them corporately even after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, even after in the book of Acts. Corporately, Israel still kept rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ. They, they were given chances in Acts through the apostles, but they ultimately, not to say they weren't pockets that believed of Jews, but Again, that's why the Bible says blindness of part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentile come in. 
What then is Rahab not obtaining that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Also see Colossians 3.12, 1 Thessalonians 1.4, Titus 1.1, 1, 1, 1 Peter 1.2, 1, uh, 1 Peter 5.13, 2 John 1.13. I'm not going to get into all those verses, we just don't have time. But the verses are here listed out if you want to go check them out. There is nothing in this context of Matthew 24 to indicate that the elect means something else in this particular passage. The context indicates that the elect in Matthew 24 is not Israel, but it is the church. So in other words, people would say, well, Matthew 24 just applies to Israel. It doesn't apply to us because the church isn't on the, on the, um, the church isn't even on the planet during that time. That doesn't hold up either. We just proved that. Okay. Now these are all pre-trib arguments. So it's not like I'm over here saying, well, I'm just going to give you my post-tribulation views and I'm not going to address any of the pre-trib arguments. We're pretty much addressing them all today. We're going at it head-to-head, all of the pre-trib arguments. They're really not that hard, though, to break down because they don't harmonize with Scripture. They're easily picked apart. Now, if I was up here trying to defend the pre-trib position, oh, man. What a what a nightmare that would be. Nightmare. This is easy. Honestly. Well, it should be easy. It should be easily defensible. And in taking in context, comparing scripture with scripture, line upon line, precept upon precept, as the Bible says, it's pretty easy when you start looking at this. Like, when I get done with this teaching, I don't know how many parts it's going to be. But when it's all said and done, this is going to be pretty easy to defend. This is not going to be like, really, uh, it's, it's not going to be like, oh, wow, I, I, I just don't know how I feel. That It should be so, it, it, it should already be so unbelievably obvious that the post-trib position is the right position, even at this point. And we've still got a long way to go. So, let's go further. Uh, let's see. The Lord Jesus himself taught a post-trib rapture in his parables. The parable of the wheat and tares in Matthew 13, 24-30 and 36-43 disproves the pre-trib rapture theory as both the wicked and the saved are harvested at the same time at the end of the world. Okay, let's read some of that. Matthew thirteen Wow, i got a lot of verses listed here through 43. No, my word. Okay, Matthew 13, 24. And we're going to skip a little bit here, and we're going to go all the way into up to verse 43. Okay, now remember, this is Jesus Christ teaching essentially a post-trib rapture position. Matthew 13.24, another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while the man slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. Now, this it reminds me of all those verses we just read in the Jesuits in previous teachings where they're, where they're commanded to go and infiltrate the Christian ranks and to appear as Christians and to even speak out against the, against the Catholic Church. As long as it advances their agenda, they've got no problem doing that. They are tares. That's a very extreme example of a tear. Okay? 
And while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and he brought and brought forth fruit, there appeared also the tares. Tares meaning like weeds. You got good wheat and you got weeds growing with the wheat. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst not thou sow good seed in thy field? From whence came then it tares? Where, where did the weeds come from? Okay. And he said unto them, An enemy hath done this. The servant said unto him, Will thou then we go and gather them up? But he said, Nay, lest ye gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and in the time of harvest I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares, the weeds, and bind them up in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. The wheat being saved Christians. Let's go ahead, let's go to verse 36 now. Matthew 13, 36. Then Jesus sent away the multitude, Jesus was teaching to the multitude in parables. But remember, his disciples would kind of like pull him aside afterward a lot of times and say, can you give us the exact interpretation of that parable? Well, this is what they were doing here. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house and his disciples came on him saying, declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. He, meaning Jesus, answered them and said unto them, He that soweth the good seed is the Son of Man. Capital S, Son of Man. Remember we saw that the Son of Man came to the Ancient of Days? Jesus Christ is the Son of Man. Okay, so he's actually referring to himself in that portion. Okay, he that soweth the good seed is the Son of Man. Um, the field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom. The Bible-believing Christians, essentially born again Bible believing Christians, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. Remember, the harvest is the end of the world. Well, the end of the world, you mean the tribulation? Yeah, the end of the tribulation. That's when the wheat's going to be gathered. This is so obvious now. Jesus Christ said it right here. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world. The reapers are the angels. Well, we're going to confirm this even more. Next verse. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of the world. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels... Now, I have a little comment here. Sounds like some other passages we've already read dealing with the post-tribulation rapture and the judgment of the wicked. And we're going to look at those verses again. But first, I'm going to read this. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of the kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire, and there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. That sounds like hell. It is. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. Hmm. That sounds like some of the other verses we read. Huh. Well, like what? Well, like Matthew 24, 31, which we've read several times. And he shall send his angels with the great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Wow, that sounds like that. Well, it is. It's the same event. Uh, or some other verses. 
Okay, Second Thessalonians 1, 7. And to you who are troubled, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Doesn't that sound like what we just read in Matthew, where he's going to send his angels, and as therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of the world? Yeah, huh. Tears are gathered, burn the fire. It says, uh, and then, then we go to 2 Thessalonians 1.8, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Huh, that, that sounds exactly like what we just read in Matthew 13, 40, 40 through 42. It is, it's the same event. It totally harmonizes with scripture easily, utterly, and overwhelmingly. Let's go further. Next verse. Well, let me read that last verse again. Who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he shall come to be glorified in his saints. Okay, he shall come to be glorified in his saints. Hmm. Well, what is the verse that we just read previously in Matthew 13, 43? It says, then, now this is after the wicked are cast into the furnace of fire. They'll be wailing and gnashing of teeth. It says in Matthew 13, 43, Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in their kingdom of their father who hath ears to hear, let him hear. Doesn't that kind of sound like when he shall come to be glorified in the saints? Yeah. And to be admired in all them that believe because our testimony among you was believed this day. That's 2 Thessalonians 1.10. I'm going back and forth a lot to try to prove the points here that these are totally in reference to the same event. It, it's, this is one of the most complex Bible studies I've ever done, but also I believe as I go through this, it's, almost, it's, it's actually one of the easiest provable studies I've ever done. It's really, really easy to reconcile these scriptures. It's not this big stretch and... Oh, this is so hard. It's not. It's pretty easy. Okay. Not because I'm so smart, just because the Bible confirms itself. Okay, so next point. The parable of the days of Noah in Matthew 24, 37 through 41 agrees with the parable of the wheat and tares in that the wicked were taken away in the flood, but not the righteous. Hmm. It's true. Next point. The book of Revelation teaches a post-tribulation rapture. We've already kind of proven that, but we'll prove it again. Revelation 24 through 6 describes the resurrection, uh, the first resurrection of the righteous who will reign with Christ on earth for a thousand years. The event is presented in clear chronological order following the tribulation period and the battle of Armageddon. After the Antichrist and the false prophet were cast alive into the lake of fire and Satan is bound for a thousand years. There is no previous resurrection of saved Christians presented in Revelation. Although the same event is alluded to in Revelation 11, 15-19, the seventh trumpet. This event in Revelation 24-6 is the post-tribulation rapture of the church, referred to as the first resurrection in these passages. If there was another resurrection or rapture before the tribulation, the event of Revelation 20 would be the second resurrection, not the first. See, there's all these things that cannot be explained if you believe in a post-trib rapture. 
There's all these scriptures that don't make any sense then. A simple word study of the word first in the context of Revelation 20 shows that the word clearly means first in chronological order, not, quote, best, as some have claimed. Oh, the word first means best. That's what it really means. This is, this is the type of leaps of logic you have to take to supposedly biblically prove a preacher of rapture. It is the first resurrection as compared and opposed to the second resurrection and the second death of the wicked a thousand years later following the millennial reign of Christ. Um, And that's described in Revelation 20, 12 through 15. The pre-trib position typically attempts to claim the words to claim the words to the apostle John in Revelation 4.1. Here's another thing. Uh, come up hither as being a veiled hidden reference to the rapture. Okay, that's that's something I've heard too. The pre-trib say, oh yeah, and John uh, 4.1, uh, when when they say come up come up hither to John, it's a veiled hidden reference to the rapture. This is absurd given the clear and unmistakable presentation in Revelation 20 of the first resurrection and the fact that the rapture of the church is to be glorious, unmistakable, creation-changing event, see Romans 8, 18-23, not a secret, silent event um, like the pre-trib rapture people are saying it may be. The first resurrection in Revelation 20 is presented clearly and is not hidden in a verse to be secretively interpreted like the pre-tribbers do for Revelation 4.1. The attempt to find a pre-tribulation rapture in Revelation 4.1 is typical of the many secretive and convoluted interpretations required to come up with any teaching for the pre-tribulation rapture. Uh, eighth point, the pre-trib argument that the church is not mentioned in the book of Revelation after chapter 3 and that hence the rapture must have occurred at Revelation 4.1 is blatantly false. Okay, Point A regarding that, an argument from silence is a weak argument. The Bible does not contain the words rapture or trinity, but still clearly teaches these doctrines. The word church is also found, not found in the books of 2 Timothy Titus, Second uh, Peter, um, one or Second John or Jude, but these books are clearly written both to and about the church. Point B regarding this: the Book of Jude does not mention the church by name, but it uses the word saints to refer to the church in verse three and fourteen, just as the Apostle John does throughout the Book of Revelation. Uh, and then it gives a whole list of of um, Verses in Revelation where the word saints are used, which is obviously in reference to the church. Other references to faith, the faithful church remnant in Revelation are the martyrs of, of um, Revelation 6, 9 and 11, 6, 6, 9 through 11, the great multitude of Revelation 7, 9 through 17, and those who die in the Lord in Revelation 14, 13, and the people of God called out of Babylon, Revelation 18, 4. The church is seen all throughout the book of Revelation. Because pre-trib rapture people say, oh no, the church isn't even mentioned. There's, there's no mention of it. It's just purely Israel. No, it's not. No, it's not. Hopefully we've already proven that. The seventh point. The rapture of the church will be a glorious, unmistakable, creation-changing event, not a secret, silent event. 
hidden in the veiled reference of Revelation 4.1, as taught by the preacher in position. Therefore, the rapture of the church must occur after the tribulation and at the beginning of the millennial reign of Christ. Let's prove that. Okay, Romans 8.18-23 and Philippians 3.20-21. These passages link the redemption of our body, the rapture, to the restoration of creation to its Edenic state. Meaning like, it's going to go back to like the Garden of Eden in the millennial reign of Christ. Now I did a partial teaching on that, on the recent teaching I did on Gog and Magog. How things are going to be way different in the millennial reign. Okay? So you can reference that if you like. Uh, it's going to restore creation to its identic state, which shall, which shall be the case during the thousand year millennial reign of Jesus Christ on earth, which obviously cannot come before the cataclysmic judgments of the tribulation period, but only afterward, thus also proving a post-tribulation rapture position. I mean, we're proving this in multiple ways. Okay, let's read some of those verses we just mentioned. Romans 8, 18 through 23. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. Waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God? Yeah. This is when we're actually going to be receive our This is when um, corruption is going to put on incorruption. Creation is actually waiting for this event. For when this happens. When we are changed in the twinkling of an eye. When we receive our glorified bodies. I reckon the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. This is not in reference to the angels at this point. Sons of God is actually the way as a term used in the Old Testament to represent angels. But in the New Testament, it's representative of believers. You do keyword search, you, it, it, easily provable. Okay, For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Children of God. Sons of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, capital S, the Holy Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of the body. Our bodies are going to be basically redeemed. Our spirits, as born-again Christians, I believe already are redeemed to a certain extent, but our bodies are still corruptible. Now our bodies, the creation's waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. For our conversation is in heaven, from whence we also look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he's coming back from heaven at the rapture, at the post-tribulation rapture. We look for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our conversation is in heaven. (laughs) It's totally proving post-tribulation rapture once again. Where's another place we get confirmation? 
Philippians 3, 20-21. For our conversation is in heaven... From whence, uh, I'm sorry, I already, already got into that. For our conversation is heaven, from whence we also look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able to subdue all things to him unto himself. When does that occur? The rapture. This is what all creation is waiting for. It's going to be a gigantic, huge event. All I shall see Jesus Christ. Everybody's going to know about it. It's not going to be some secret rapture that happens prior to the tribulation. Everybody's whisked off the planet and nobody knows what happened. It's the exact opposite. But if you'd rather believe Tim LaHaye in the Left Behind series, well... I mean, again, one gigantically huge point after another. We're just hammering here. Now I've got to end part three here and we're going to go to part four. God bless you and we'll see you in part four.